Amen. Thank you, Corb, for choosing that song. I first heard it at Sing Conference a year and a half ago. It was written by City of Light. They reached out to Tim Challies, who a year before that had lost his son, just collapsed and passed away while he was at Boyce College in Louisville, Kentucky. And he uh, journaled for the next year about his grieving. And uh, City of Light reached out to him and said, we'd like to write a song with you. He said, I don't know how that's going to work. I don't sing. I don't write music. I don't write songs. They said, we want to write a song about what you've been writing. He said, okay, here's my book, his unpublished book that debuted at that conference. And uh, I encourage you to get it. Uh, That's a little history behind the song. I hope it makes it more meaningful to you. When in a foreign country, you're constantly being reminded that you are indeed a foreigner. This is especially true when you're visiting for a short period of time. However, it's even true when you are living there. Sure, the constant reminders are less and less the longer that you are there, but routinely things happen that do remind you that you are not in your native home. Yesterday, after I shared this with my wife, she went and looked for our gaijing card. Literally, outsider card that we had to carry with us in Japan 24-7. A constant reminder that we were not in our native home. The language is different, the thinking is different, the physical surroundings are different, even the way we look may be different. Many of you know that Naomi and I lived in Japan for nine years. Those were some of the best nine years of our lives, and we returned with two souvenirs named Lily and Isaac. We went to work for the Japanese government for a year in 1995, and every year we had to renew our commitment for the next year. That happened for nine years. That yearly task itself was a consistent reminder that Japan was not our permanent home. Being a foreigner in Japan came with a lot of distinct advantages. We could pick and choose aspects of life we wanted to participate in. I always called it the foreigner pass. All foreigners coming into our area of Japan were immediately given this pass, and they could keep it as long as they maintained a shred of human decency. However, we noticed that Japanese people who left Japan and then came back didn't experience the same freedom that we did. The Japanese culture in our area of Japan during the time we lived there was very rigid. They had a set way of doing things and kids were brought up to conform to the expectations of society. But when people would leave Japan for any length of time, it was as if their flower would open up and bloom. But upon returning, the expectations of society, culture, family, work, etc., would all try and put that flower back into its bud. And just like that doesn't happen in nature, so it's difficult to make that happen in real people. And this is even more true for Japanese people who professed faith in Christ, whether they left Japan or not. There would be things that they used to do that they just didn't do anymore because of their new allegiance to Jesus. This would cause a lot of stress and strain for all involved, and it would oftentimes result in undue suffering for the believer. I share this illustration because the text that we're going to be looking at this morning, would you please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. 
I appreciate Pastor Keith's excellent sermon last week on 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, and encourage you to watch or listen to it if you haven't done so already, as it introduces the themes, the theme of what we're going to be talking about this morning. The letter of 1 Peter is written to Christians who are living both literally and spiritually as foreigners and who, because of their allegiance to Jesus, are experiencing persecution. This letter is bookended with encouragement to persevere in light of the fact that suffering is only for a little while compared to eternity. And it will bring glory to both Jesus Christ and to the sufferer in the eternal state. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, and continuing on through chapter 4 and verse 11, Peter challenges his Christian readers, in light of their status as foreigners, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He then walks his readers through how this looks in relation to their government, their work, their spouses, and then their churches. Peter then switches gears, and beginning with the passage Pastor Keith brought last week, he challenges his readers that in the face of suffering, not to have the fear of man, but rather to have the fear of God. And he presents the example of how Christ endured suffering in this life in order to bring us to God. And how he was vindicated by his ascension into heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subjected to him. With that in mind, let's read our passage and see, it, see in it a new encouragement that Peter gives to his readers who are suffering because of their allegiance to Jesus. Namely, it's worth it to give up sin for Christ. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. It's worth it to give up sin for Christ. Let's look at the first two verses where Peter tells his readers to think like Christ. A quick initial reading of these verses might be at first confusing. What does Peter mean when he says that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? Well, think back to my opening illustration about people becoming Christians in Japan. A person who chooses to stop participating in certain aspects of their society because of their new allegiance to Jesus should expect to experience negative consequences. In short, they can expect to experience a great deal of suffering in the form of peer pressure, derogatory comments, ostracization, easy for you to say, to name a few. That's what Peter is talking about in these verses. 
Jump down to verse 3 for a second. See how Peter describes the people that he's writing to. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Peter uses the term Gentiles not to refer specifically to their ethnicity, but rather to their covenantal relationship with God. Before they had been brought into a relationship with God through Jesus, they used to participate in the sinful practices that he's going to describe in the rest of verse 3. But now, they no longer do because they are aligned with Christ. As a result, they experience the persecution described in verse 4. So getting back to our phrase in verse 1, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, we can now see and understand that suffering comes as a result of not participating in the sinful practices that they used to participate in. The sinful practices that their culture condones and even celebrates. Peter anchors this suffering to Christ, both at the beginning of verse 1, but also referring back to 3.18, which says, For Christ also suffered for sins once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This verse helps us understand a couple aspects of his suffering. For one, it becomes clear what Peter means by the flesh, repeated three times for us in verses 1 and 2. If you're familiar with the writings of the Apostle Paul, you will, you will remember that the Apostle Paul often means our sinful natures when he refers to the flesh. But that's not how Peter is using it here, clearly, since he uses the flesh in reference to both Christ in 3.18 and, and us again in 4.1 and 2. Paul uses, or Peter uses this term to refer to our life from birth until death. The NIV translates it either as the body or earthly lives, which is actually very helpful for us to distinguish it from how Paul uses it. Now, the second way that 3.18 can help us understand 4, 1 through 2 is to see the effect Christ's suffering in his life had on Peter's readers both now and then. In fact, Christ suffered once for sins, not for his sins, but for our sins. He died for our sins so that we can die to our sins. His death made it possible for us to be declared righteous, cleansed from all our sins, made alive spiritually so that we can live a new life no longer dominated or characterized by sin. So when we arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, we are committed to thinking about suffering and sinning in the same way that Christ does. Christ willingly embraced the suffering so that he could kill sin and provide a way for us to do the same. When we embrace the suffering that comes from not sinning, we are thinking about sin and suffering in the way that Christ does. And isn't that what it means to be a Christian? We want to be like Jesus like the bracelets, hats, bumper stickers, etc., used to say WWJD. What would Jesus do? In this instance, it would be HWJT. How would Jesus think? Which precedes WWJD. Now that gives new meaning 
to these verses. Let's look at these verses again with this new perspective. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Let me give you the Tim Van Lowe paraphrase of these verses. Because Christ suffered during his life here on this earth so he could rescue you from sin, think like he did. There are earthly consequences for abstaining from the sinful practices of the world in which you have lived, in which you live, but you have been freed from the eternal consequences of sin and given a new purpose for living out your earthly life. No longer are you living to please yourself or others, but now you are living according to the will of God and to please him and him alone. It's worth it to give up sin for Christ. Now, having the mind of Christ often results in persecution. So we should expect that, and that's what we see in verses 3 and 4. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the flood of debauchery and they malign you. In light of this, Peter then tells his readers in verses 3 and 4, that if they think and act like Christ, they should expect persecution. In verse 12, Peter is going to tell his readers not to be surprised at the fiery trials that come upon them. Here in verse 4, he explains why they should expect to be persecuted by saying that those expecting the believers to participate in sinful practices as they used to do are now surprised when they don't. In other words, believers, don't be surprised when unbelievers are surprised at your new way of life, which, no long, which involves no longer doing what they once did and induces them to persecute you. By making the shift, it feels to them like you are judging them. And so they respond by trying to cast the bad light back onto you. Now, what are the sinful practices that Peter's readers are ceasing to participate in? Well, this is quite a list. The human passions in verse 2 are now laid out in detail in verse 3 and are framed by the first two words, sensuality and passions. These words can also be translated as debauchery and lust. In other words, the things they used to participate in and that their unbelieving friends still participate in are characterized by an extreme indulgence in debased bodily pleasure and a very strong, self-serving sexual desire. It's interesting that the next three things listed are all things that when practiced within proper constraints aren't evil in and of themselves. They refer to activities that involve eating, drinking, and sex. God created us with physical bodies, so that these things practiced within their God-given restraints are necessary for sustaining and propagating life. But when the restraints are lifted, accompanied by a lack of self-control, along with extreme selfishness, these things become both self-destructive and harmful to others. 
That's what Peter means by ceasing from sin. They are ceasing from being controlled by the passions of this life. Now, the last thing on this list, lawless idolatry, takes the practice of worshiping idols, which in and of itself is a terrible sin, of course. But by adding the words, word lawless, Peter is addressing how these religious practices often incorporated into their worship of idols many of the sexual vices he had just listed. Now notice the kind of persecution that the believers experience. The ESV translates it as, they malign you. Because the Christians choose to do God's will and don't participate in the same flood of debauchery, the unbelievers malign the Christians in such a way that they also blaspheme God. The literal word translated here as malign means to blaspheme. This is not their intent, but it is the result. These unbelievers that the Christians used to run with, which are surprised at the Christians' new trajectory of life, they're ashamed because a light is cast on their actions, exposing them for the evil that they are, and they also attack the Christians because of their alignment with God, their choice to not sin and to do the will of God. Instead, they choose to think like Christ and ultimately worship God. In so doing, the unbelievers unwittingly give these Christians the ultimate compliment by treating them like Christ who experienced the worst possible means of suffering. Friends, it's not so different today. There are times when believers today, like the song I used to sing as a kid says, the things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. The things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. The things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. There's been a great change since I've been born again. And when this happens, the people we used to do those things with may malign us and say all sorts of bad things about us. They may cut off their relationship with us. They may do even worse and make up lies about us. Now, pause for a second. Certainly, we shouldn't give any ground for people to stand on when they do this. We should not just be thinking like Jesus, but we should be living like him as well in a loving, kind, and generous way such that the words of 1 Peter 2.12 are true about us. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may at that same time see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. But, and, there will be times when our good will be even spoke, evil spoken of. And we need to be prepared for that, to expect that. So let me, once again, give you Tim Van Lowe expanded paraphrase for verses 3 and 4. You've spent enough time living the sinful life of those outside of Christ, one that is characterized by debauchery and lust, getting drunk, all forms of sex outside of a marriage between one man and one woman, excessive partying and worshiping anything and anyone other than the one true God. As a result, the people you used to do those things with are shocked that you no longer participate with them in these excessive sins, and they malign you like Christ was maligned. 
It's worth it to give up sin for Christ. Lastly, there is good news tied in with this commitment to thinking like Christ and the persecution that accompanies this new trajectory of living. And so we should anticipate opportunities to share our faith in the same vein as what Peter has already written in 3, 13 through 17. Let me read these verses from Pastor Keith's sermon last week and tie them into verses 5 and 6. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. In other words, these experiences of persecution should be looked at as opportunities for evangelism. Now, you might expect that coming from the pastor whose main job description is to promote evangelism. But let's look at verses 5 and 6 and see if you can see it also. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. These verses have been called two of the most difficult verses to understand in 1 Peter. Some have tied them in with 3.19 and what it says there about Jesus going and proclaiming to the spirits in prison. Pastor Keith did a good job last Sunday explaining that the spirits in 319 are not people, but rather the angelic beings in prison since the time of Noah. So unless I'm going to disagree with Pastor Keith, and I'm not, the ones in 4.6 can't be the same ones in 319 if for no other reason than the fact that the gospel is not for angels, but for people. Another bad rendering of this verse is that it is teaching some form of universalism. In other words, after death, the gospel will be preached to people at least one more time so that they too can spend eternity with God. But a basic rule for interpreting scripture is to allow clear teaching to explain unclear teaching. Here we have an unclear passage, so we can look to other clear passages to rule out this universalistic idea. Passages like Hebrews 9, 27 and 28, which says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For the sake of time, I'll just give you one more, Revelation 20, 12 through 15. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in to the lake of fire. So these verses can't be teaching universalism. 
that leaves us with basically one clear option and that this verse is referring to people who are dead now, but while they were alive, the gospel was preached to them and they responded to it positively. In other words, people who are now dead but had become followers of Christ during their life and then died are now living in the spirit like God does. The contrast is between the life in the flesh, this birth to life existence, and life in the spirit, life after death with God in the eternal state. So going back to verse 5, the unbelievers persecuting the believers for their decision to think like Christ when it comes to sin and suffering will have to answer to the God they are blaspheming by maligning the believers. My seminary professor, who has written a commentary in 1 Peter, Dr. Glennie, put it this way. Believers may face a serious accounting in this life, but the accounting unbelievers face is far more serious. Putting verses 5 and 6 together, I hope you can see the gospel opportunity that presents itself. If verse 6 tells us that preaching the gospel in this life leads to people repenting of their sins and putting their faith and trust in Christ, and that results in eternal life with God, then those who are maligning the believers fit the description of those who are still alive and still have an opportunity to respond to the preaching of the good news. If they don't respond to the gospel, they will face the judgment of God. If they do respond to the gospel, then the judgment Christ experienced becomes their judgment. I love how 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 7, Paul describes the process of someone converting to Christ. In verses 1 and 2, he commits, Paul commits to a clear presentation of the gospel without any manipulation or coercion. Then in verses 3 and 4, he describes the condition of every single person who has lived on this earth other than Jesus. All of us are born into this world spiritually blinded by the God of this world so that we can't see the glory of the gospel of Christ. And so what are we to do in light of this predicament? Well, he tells us in verse 5, we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And what is the result? He tells us that in verse 6. The same creator God who commanded light to shine out of darkness when he created the world also shines light into our dead and darkened hearts, giving the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's how people are converted out of sin into a relationship with Christ. But you might say, is that really happening anymore? Seems like the people I'm running with outside of church don't believe this stuff. To that I say, it is happening. And if you are in Christ... You are exhibit A. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It is God's work to raise the spiritually dead to life. It's our work to think like Christ, expect persecutions, anticipate the gospel opportunities, and then take them. Let me give you the Tim Van Lowe paraphrase of verses 5 and 6. The unbelievers you used to run with who are now maligning you will answer to God at the final judgment. There are many who are now dead who have avoided this judgment by responding to the preaching of the gospel while they were still on this earth. Now they are alive in the spirit like Jesus with God. It's worth it to give up sin for Christ. 
you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, let me address you for just a second. The world that we live in offers all sorts of amusements that can bring temporary thrills. But there is an accounting to the way we live our lives. We were created by God to live in such a way that brings glory to him and not to ourselves. The earthly pleasures we're tempted to indulge in are an abomination to the way God created us and will ultimately bring self-harm and harm to others. Most importantly, one day we will have to answer to God for the way we lived our lives. There is good news, however. All of us, every single person in this room, have participated in this kind of lifestyle to one degree or another. But there is a way of rescue, a way for us to be friends with God, and that is the way of Christ. This means that we have to repent of the choices we have made. We turn from them and turn to Christ in whom we find forgiveness. And even more than that, Christ's death and resurrection for our sins provide a way for his righteousness to become ours. We are declared righteous by God because of what Christ has done for us. There is hope for peace and joy beyond your wildest dreams that far surpass any earthly pleasures you can participate in. It's worth it to give up sin for Christ. Now let me talk to the Christians. We live in an eerily similar time as the original recipients of this letter living in Rome. Christians today have to make decisions related to all sorts of debauchery in our society. How are we going to interact with coworkers who feel threatened by a work ethic that puts in a full day's work for a full day's wage? How are we going to interact with the LGBTQ plus community in a loving way that respects the image of God in all people while still not participating in the very sins that mar God's image in people? How are we going to interact with those who ask us to lie in order to achieve whatever goal they have in mind, regardless of the merits of that goal? All of these decisions are going to subject believers to persecution from the world around us, and we need to be prepared to suffer the consequences for aligning with Christ, while at the same time looking for the opportunities in that persecution to share our hope in Christ. It's worth it to give up sin for Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the clear teaching in your word. We are surrounded by temptations every day to take shortcuts, to give in to the lifestyle, the prevailing lifestyle of the world around us, Lord, I pray that we as Christians would be known for a people characterized by both good works and a good attitude. That the friends and co-workers and neighbors around us who know that we're Christians and may not agree with what we believe the Bible says, 
still at the end of the day, there's something about us that is attractive to them. A generosity. A looking past the sin and into the heart. A willingness to reach out and help. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today that does not know you, that is counting the cost of giving up their sin in light of what we've been talking about this morning, I pray that as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, you would open their eyes to see the beauty of the gospel and the glory of Christ. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.